Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of JCOS Presents Sound Sociology in conversation with. And uh, you're in for a treat today. Uh, first time, we have we have a previous guest who is coming back for a second episode. We've got Dr. Lisa Socrates. Welcome back. Oh, lovely to be back. Thank you. Um, again, not never to date these episodes, but it's the last day of school and we are here recording uh, because we wanted to put out a really what we think is a really cool episode um, looking at culture uh, and crossing over between uh, film and sociology and probably just a wider conversation that's kind of almost about cultural studies in a way. Um, but I think today we're, going, we're just going to jump into it. We're going to jump straight in. Um, when we um, talk about culture, it's a term that gets banded around and thrown around quite a lot. What's your understanding of culture? I think my, my initial starting point is always to, to start quite broadly and to think that culture can be um, a way of life and in a more specific sense culture can refer to cultural products, kind of the, the making of artefacts that communicate ideas about how groups or individuals see the world. So, you know, a painting could be... Um, a, a, a cultural artifact, um, you know, something that somebody has made um, to express how they see uh, the world on that particular afternoon if they're, if they're painting by the seaside. Um, culture is, you know, a Jane Austen novel or a, a Shakespeare play uh, in specific sense. But it can also be specific in terms of is the culture specific to a group and that group might be um, a national group, so there's British culture or American culture, and there may be a culture that is more ethnically, I think quite appropriate for ourselves here at JCOS, a, a culture that might be um, a Jewish culture that again reflects um, something specific about that community, you know, in terms of traditions uh, and religion and practices as well. Culture, I think, to be meaningful has to be shared. Yep. That's probably, for me, a, a vital starting point. I, th- I think that's really key in sociology. When cult- well, you know, it's, it's, it's often the first term that gets put out there in a GCSE lesson and that when they do their glossaries. And culture is, a, is, is everything we engage with, from art to music to food to customs to, uh, to, to books to, to theatre... In sociology, we have um, we often discuss culture uh, with two schools of thought in mind. Um, there's high culture, and there's there's popular culture, and there's this slight perception of one being uh, being for the more highbrow than, and there's one that's considered a bit more lowbrow and a bit more oh that's for the masses. Um, with with these two terms, I can't help but think of um, Pierre Bourdieu. Or forgive my pronunciation there. It's uh, he talks about habitus, and habitus is this idea that we're socialised into our social class. We we learn norms and values that connect to, to being middle class or upper class or working class. So in our speech patterns, in where we do our food shop, in what books uh, a social class would engage with, or genre of music, or or the types of friends you might hang around with and in terms of their occupations. And I can't help but feel like that 
beautifully ties in with the perceptions of high culture and popular culture. Um, if one has a habitus that is really rooted in upper middle class values of elaborated speech code, of engaging with classics, uh, perceived classic texts, or watching world cinema, it becomes part of high culture. Whereas popular culture is perceived to be for the masses, for the working class, it doesn't require a lot of cultural capital to understand it. It's it's a it's ultimately the lowest form of 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 culture because it is the most easiest to access. Um, I wonder though when we when we think about about these two terms, how how dangerous is it to just polarize them like that? Um, so you've you've raised some really interesting ideas about how ideas of culture. Um, intersect with with notions of class, and of course, a lot of these, when when we think about um, high culture and low culture from a British context, obviously we have to contextualise our understanding. We have to think, in other words, about time and place. Uh, so British culture, I think, has gone through a really good uh, shake up over the last. Um, 50, 60 years, and I think what characterises that change is the transition that we've made steadily um, from everything you've defined as, as part of high culture within a class context, that you've been to a public school and you speak in a particular way and you've studied the classics and you don't study pulp fiction, for example. Uh, popular, popular novels. Uh, what we what what would happen there is that we would make value judgments that it's much better to have um, Jane Austen and Thomas Hardy and Shakespeare always on your English syllabus because those are proper works of of literature, uh, and you wouldn't include other works of literature, for example. So the the history I think of the twentieth century has been about moving slowly and becoming far more comfortable um, with different aspects of pop popular culture. If we come up to date, that would include, you know, video games and, dare I say, people's tweets on social media and people's posts on Instagram or people sharing artwork um, on Instagram or YouTube. Today, um, we, we wouldn't make those valued judgments about the value of popular culture. We would acknowledge it as part of creativity, as part of digital development. And we talk today about digital humanities and the, the, the digital has uh, permeated all aspects of our life, whether we engage with media or not. It's, it's there in all forms in education, in how we've taught in teams this year and so on. Um, but I, I, one of the things that we do need to acknowledge specifically from um, a British perspective, is how uh, intertwined the idea of our class is. So if we're working class, it doesn't necessarily correlate, but it has done in, in a lot of thinking and in a lot, a lot of theories as well, it correlates that you're working class and that therefore you might watch television and not go to the opera. And it's always interesting when you meet a builder, for example, and he tells you that he loves 
the opera. Mm. Uh, that, that would be sort of perhaps smashing the, the stereotype there. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it is interesting when you have those situations because they sits in congress with with people in their mindset of like oh, i'm talking to a bloke who's have a builder's cup of tea and and they're, they're going to start talking about love at home yes. <laughs> and it's it's with that in mind that it you know part of today's episode is to talk about culture but also to talk about how this idea of whether the way we access culture has become democratized and whether it's now become more accessible to everyone um, and you, one could argue there's been turning points, especially the last 12 months, that has arguably made it more democratised. But it's also probably going a lot further back and thinking about some probably some key thinkers. And I understand that you've got um, a key thinker that you see is quite important to this debate. Um, um, Raymond Williams. Yes. So Raymond Williams um, wrote a, a seminal, a really important um book called Culture and Society 1780 to 1950 and really what he does there is he looks at British society historically in that period Uh, and for him the turning point is uh, um, the process of urbanisation because um, when when England became industrialised there weren't any jobs for everybody Uh, there were new jobs in the cities um, and people were happy to leave the smaller communities in the country in the in the rural environment so urbanization and industrialization meant um, people moving to the cities but also industrialization means that we make a shift in produce Uh, if, if you've got a factory you can make more than one of something. You're not just making an, an individual piece of art. Mm-hmm. You're making something that you can sell mm-hmm. um, in, as part of mass production. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the, the, the idea of class and the idea of mass-produced culture sort of comes into play maybe after the Second World War as well in a, in a different guise because we've just had a war. Um, the whole country's gone through a massive overhaul um, there's been a rethinking of the class structure um, and of course throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century uh, the working man at, at various stages and then women too have had the vote mm-hmm. as well so democracy is a key term um, Raymond Williams defines his debate his starting point for a discussion on culture by looking at key words, industry, democracy, class, which intersects a lot with our understanding from a sociological perspective of how change and turning points, transitions take place in society, art, and then broadly culture. So um, he grapples with and actually um, he rejects the idea that culture has to be the best that has been thought and written in the world because who's to say what who is what is the best and the point is that for a long time it would have been the upper classes the aristocracy the public school educated chaps that would have decided what gets taught at university um what what um is considered to be you know a good book a good novel a good play a good playwright so many of us would have studied at GCSE other 
pieces of writing, you know, poetry around the world and poetry in conflict engages with writers who are not British born. That for me would have been a turning point. Mm -hmm. So uh, one interesting thing for all of us uh, as students or teachers is to understand the importance of education and learning in that shift between what is high culture and what is um, popular culture as well. And one other thing to mention before we can perhaps draw in other aspects to this quite broad subject is that in the 1950s, when people's spending power increased in that consumer rise in the 1950s, is, is the, the idea also you've got mass production, but you've got mass communication, more people uh, buying televisions, affording televisions. So the news is zoomed into the, their living room now. They're not just hearing it on what they would call the wireless. More people having access to information. It's, uh, it's just made me, uh, my, as ever, my brain's pinged and gone substitute hearth. In sociology, it's the idea that the TV replaced the, the fireplace ah, uh, and, yes. and, and became the, the focal point in everyone's, in everyone's yes. house. Wonderful, yes. Uh, and, and with that, it, you know, it brings, uh, as you say, mass communication, mass, mass news on, on, on demand, and it changes our understanding of, of how to engage with culture. On that note, um, before the podcast, we, we also spoke about another person, uh, Stuart Hall. Yes. Um, Stuart Hall been in the news very recently or relatively recently uh, where he gave um, a relatively clean bill of health to Britain being seen as not racist um, and I mention that because I think it's important because Stuart Hall uh, um, comes from a, a Caribbean background yes, and he talks about our engagement and correct me if I'm wrong talks about our engagement with culture is also needs to be seen from not just from a class point of view, yes. but also from uh, using his identity market as a black Caribbean man, uh, how we also engage with culture beyond class. Is that, am I on the right Absolutely, line? Absolutely, yes. So because he became a, a key, he, he, w- he would have read the work of Raymond Williams and reworked that, uh, acknowledging that class was a marker, but also in the post-Windrush um, generation. So uh, when a lot of people came to the UK that were former colonies, met, met former uh, empire, under the British Empire, um, one community was the um, Caribbean community. So uh, Stuart Hall is black British and um, introduces the idea that when we're looking at culture, who makes it um, and how we... Um, enjoy it, consume it, interplay with it and how we uh, interpret it, how we how we try and think, well, what does it mean? Then we need to factor in issues of race as well. Um, and I think there's some, we might, if we were doing a, a timeline, say that that would be quite consistent with Raymond Williams looking at changes in British society and how those social, historical, political changes impacted on class and who made culture and who said what is the best Mm -hmm. that this is the best Mm -hmm. so I think that's an ongoing process that would link us to the present day Mm -hmm. what else would we add today apart from class and race Mm -hmm. 
um, to enable us to have a more all-encompassing, uh, less skewed, dare I say, less privileged understanding of who can make culture and who, who can enjoy it and who can express an opinion on it. And other things, of course, would be gender mm, as well. Of course, of course. Um, and students might at some point come, come across Bell Hooks. Uh, no, actually, who's Bell Hooks? So she's black. Um, she's sorry. Yes, yeah, so, so Bell Hooks is, a, is an, an American, um, black American female who, who, who says that she is defined as a, a woman in terms of her identity, but in, 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 the, in the first wave of feminism, that she wanted to in- introduce the idea that she was black, working class, and a woman. So her race, her identity, her gender, and her class were those elements that defined her identity. And, and how she how she interpreted culture would kind of kind of sort of stem from that in the way that Stuart Hall is in the British context suggesting that when we shake up our understanding of what culture is that he's he's introducing the idea of of race as well it's funny it makes me also think of um uh, Akala Akala is um and a, listeners, a, a definitely a book I would really recommend. Natives um, tying social class and, and, and a race together in understanding of identity, but also understanding of how one engages with their culture and the culture around them. Um, he, or everything we've spoken about here, is making me think that it's one. You've got this probably in this time period in twenty twenty one. We've got a. Uh, more of an appreciation of the intersectionality of of life and how that then potentially informs culture. But it also makes me think of a media concept called decoding, that when we engage with culture, art, music, film, literature, how aware do we need to be of our own identity markers and, and then how we interpret that that film, that piece of music, etc. Um, that's spot on in terms of what Stuart Hall would like us to um, take away from his writing. So his career has been, he's written about coding and decoding uh, and interpretation. So he would argue that um, um, a, a, a piece of culture, whether it's a film or a painting or a piece of sculpture, mm or anything popular, uh, it's made and people will enjoy it, engage with it. Uh, but it hasn't fully become um, a proper piece of culture until individuals decode. And that means kind of interpret it. So I've read something and I think that this book is uh, about a political struggle or this book is about... Or that that piece of art is about the beauty of the world. <laughs> so, so meaning. But meaning is not... But meaning is not objective yes and that's what i was it's probably the thing that's been ringing around constantly in my head that it's everything is coming from a subjective point of view it's it's and it's all informed by our own value judgments of the world our own experiences our own bias but i'm going to try and veer us uh, towards a certain angle here um 
we've spoken about popular culture quite a lot now. Um, if we were looking at what, if 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 I'm uh, one of the listeners right now, hopefully for you know the 14 year old year 10 student maybe listening to this, um, what do we mean? Sorry, not what do we mean? How, how where do we? Uh, I'm trying to get my words out, listeners. What is the dominant popular culture in 2021, if there is any? I think the dominant popular culture has to be spoken about with many references to digital technology. That's one thing. Um, And that popular culture today is, is, in its own democratic way, is a culture that is valued and valuable if not not because the BBC has made it or dare I say Netflix or Amazon Prime but if anybody here at JCOS and you probably have actually listeners if anybody has made a short clip or a meme or a gif and posted it and shared it in in the in a definitional sense that is popular culture something uh, you have access to the means of production. So um, um, in, in Marxist terms, we're not waiting for the BBC to hand you a camera or equipment mm. to be able to make something mm. that is culture that people that you can share with people. So the gap between producers and consumers has been narrowed. Um, and anything we make and share with others, and there's so much of that going on in legitimate ways today, not, not as piracy, not as, but people sharing YouTube clips, people sharing their work on an Instagram post, um, that is popular culture. Um, and it's, it's contextualised as well by being very democratic because it hasn't relied on anybody needing other than their smartphones dare I say so we're assuming now that we're all digitally rich rather than digitally poor mm. uh, and I've made that assumption but I think it's a, it's a I think it's arguably the right one to make um, in terms of you know thinking of a, the digital divide um, arguably we could say there is a generational digital divide um, in terms of you know we look at younger people as digital natives and, and you know you talk about the gap between the producer and the consumers closed i'm trying to remember the word was it prosumer yes henry jenkins because he wrote a lot about computer games and video games mm. so and he called and he called it a pro he'd come at, he came coined. yeah he coined the phrase prosumer um, yes he it's that the idea is that maybe that we are we are making the content and we are sharing the content and that shapes a dominant popular culture because as you say the gatekeepers of the gatekeepers of culture now are are ourselves yes and i think that's a it's a sign that maybe you know if i was linking back to the beginning of the episode it it's you know we've distinguished between high culture and popular culture but what seems to be happening if we take this line of argument is culture has become democratized and culture is is not waiting for someone to go here hey here it is go and engage with it's it's a very uh free flowing uh concept now within 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 uh, a young within the young population and that's why i say what's in, interesting is we say that there could 
you know, arguably there is a digital divide, and that digital divide could be based on a generation uh, level. So is culture for an old generation disappearing because their understanding of culture is not what it seems to be there anymore? Um, I'm always an optimist, and also um, I think one has to be quite relativist. So perhaps, perhaps the older generation aren't um, sharing on Snapchat or on Instagram, and I suppose they say that Facebook is for the older generation. Yes. Um, it depends what we, how we, you know, if we put a marker on older generation. Yeah. But perhaps some some parents of students here at Jacobs are, you know using social media of a kind I suppose I think it's the content perhaps that might be it's not only the platforms that might be different Mm -hmm. I would think it's the content that is shared and the the humour as well yeah not to go back to platform but it's just made me think when you say the content it also makes me think of TikTok yes as a as as a as a as a way of producing culture and, and the nature of tiktok videos is that they are shorter so then it's this almost well you know the original question was asking was about like what what dominant popular culture is and it almost more than ever dominant popular culture feels is it's quite ephemeral yes. it, it's even more ephemeral than it's ever been like, like it's a quick video boom done next one and what's the next thing that that i think is uh, yes sometimes culture becomes obsolete very quickly mm-hmm. it becomes irrelevant because you know you've posted it and you have to move on to the next one perhaps and um, um and that, i think that also aligns with our restlessness i think as a society mm. now has because this this is really this has been compounded by uh, everything being available you know 24 hours and, and, and the digital is not the physical so mm. it's, it's all pervasive and I think di- digital culture sometimes um, what we haven't learnt to do is to switch off perhaps yeah it's um, I mean that that almost you know brings in with the, the discussion where we're going now we're starting to pull on other aspects and I know I've had a really interesting conversation in a previous podcast with you tend to break we're in a school uh, um uh, with Louise Trannis and Corey about um, the threats and the dangers of social media and, and it's on our mental and physical well-being. I think when we frame it in in regards to cult, in regards to dominant popular culture and the use of social media, it's. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. You've got, as ever with these things, and not to be too binary, it's like the positives of this is that it's democratised our understanding of culture and it's given people the opportunity to become the consumer and the producer of it. And that can only be a good thing because it levels the playing field. But then I see the argument why, um, if this is the, the road we go down for, for, for popular culture... How do you how do you sustain a sense of identity? Because culture is a sense of our identity, and if it's that short lived and that comes goes out of date that quickly, then it must it makes it difficult to be rooted in something. And I'm probably convincing myself here that high culture is important because it maintains a sense of tradition. I wonder, does popular culture 
the way it's going really do that. So if you... Which, by the way, was not a question we had at all. No, no. And... my feeling is that we, we, we have a mixed economy. Uh, we're very comfortable right now, mm. right here, right now, with a, a, a mixed economy of, of, of supporting all the arts and supporting high culture and low culture, supporting graffiti art. Look at the popularity of someone like Bansky, mm. for example, that enduring idea um, that it's out there and, you know, it's, it's for all. Um, and in terms of... I think we have to watch this space... We, we we could veer off, couldn't we, into other other territory here today if once we start talking about um, social media, certainly, uh, and that's a really important debate. Um, but let's, I mean, as a, as, a, as a positive, let's remind ourselves of some of those key I've things. I've done it again, haven't I? <laughs> in terms of, in terms of going back to something... But you're right to, you're right to situate democracy, something we all hold... Uh, into, as a as a value, um, and uh, and the way in which this aspect of popular culture, you know, the, the sort of the digital and the the social media dimension, if we're picking out strands, has also made our leaders accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, people being pinged and then being found out if they've not been isolated. Right. Um, I, I I think accountability, and it goes back to addressing. You know, cult- culture has to be shared, um, and according to Raymond Williams, uh, we need to look at the class structure. And I think where we are today is we're, we've we've seen the erosion of some of those elitist structures, where we've been able, where aspects of social media have actually left no hiding place for those who lead us. Absolutely agree. So uh, accountability. I think the. It's funny because the role that social media and technological advancements have made, it's like like Japanese weeds. It (laughs) it just just nuts itself around everything that we do. Um, And we really cannot underestimate the, the significance that those technological changes have had in not just informing economics or informing social, but informing, but also informing culture. Um, I want to give you one last final word on the, on the issue. Um, and I'm going to give you the standard question that I always give to everyone. Um, we've spoken at real length today about culture. If you were going to recommend any books or TV shows or films uh, for listeners who want to go away and look into it a bit more, is there anything you would recommend? So I would recommend going back to BBC iPlayer because they've got um, a Queen series on sort of the Black British presence in the UK, and that would um, acts small acts. Small acts, yeah. Yes, um, have a look at the uh, have a look at that. Enjoy popular films on on Netflix as well. Um, Stranger Things is still running, I believe, as well. So that. That, that kind of gives us a sense of global popular culture or American popular culture. Um, lots of global culture in terms of t- long-form drama on the BBC. There's The Bridge. Um, and get out, get out to the South Bank, have a look at what's, you know, what's being displayed and, and shown that might pick up on the current vibe mm-hmm. as, as well. Isolation stories picking up on how culture has been pr- produced um, individually during lockdown as well. 
Thank you so much for joining me again. It's been great fun, really. Thank you so uh, much for I, listening. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, guys, you've been listening to Jacos Presents Sound Sociology in conversation with. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode.